What's up, everybody? This is Esoteric Eddie. Namaste. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast version of Esoteric Eddie TV. I hope you enjoy this episode. Peace. Are the protocols of the learned elders of Zion real? What's up, everybody? Esoteric Eddie here. Namaste. Today, we are going to get to the bottom of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. I've got plenty of articles here lined up per usual to sift through and kind of just analyze this whole thing. Now, I've learned, I learned about these said uh, protocols years ago, way before Esoteric Eddie TV was a thing. Um, probably, uh, I don't know, probably around t- 2014 or something. And a uh, quick little fun fact in history about me, um, way before I was doing Esoteric Eddie TV, I had another YouTube channel um, that was centered around like some of the hip hop music stuff I was doing years ago. And actually, I made a documentary. The first documentary I ever made um, for YouTube was a documentary on the history of the Illuminati similar to the one that i have on my channel now but it was a lot more conspiratorial and it touched on the jewish aspect of things and that video went viral pretty quickly within the first couple of weeks it hit like over 10,000 views but then they got taken down from uh youtube uh, pretty quickly because of the jewish aspects of it and look i'm not here to talk down on any culture or person or whatever i was young and i was simply looking at all these things and and putting it together or whatever and made this documentary and so i remade that documentary which is on my channel now and it's it's less uh i guess you could say um anti-semitic or whatever i don't know according to youtube Uh, but yeah so i've heard i heard about these years and years ago and they're a fascinating it's a fascinating subject and i wanted to make this video because a lot of people seem to be fascinated by them and curious about them and it's it's the the protocols are resurfacing and to my understanding they're basically a forgery but um i don't know you know we'll come to a different conclusion through this presentation maybe and and you know europe you have the right to come to your own conclusion so i'm gonna basically just sort out the facts here take a look at what we can and decide you know for ourselves whether or not these protocols of the learned elders of zion are real all right anyways enough of all that hope everybody is doing good gonna get my presentation ready here and just go for it man all right so we got a lot to sift through so first article here is the protocols of the elders of zion coming from um i think like the holocaust website or something like that i don't know but uh let's move through it with my highlighted sections all right so the origin of a lie in 1903 portions of the protocols of the elders of zion were serialized in a russian newspaper zamnaya i don't know how to say zamya the banner and it was first published in russia in 1905 as an appendix to the great in the small the coming of the antichrist and the rule of satan on earth by russian writer and mystic sergei nilis now real quick sergei nilis is going to be the center of all of this and i remember in my previous documentary i had a section about him 
and uh because he's he's the center of this he's the guy who brought the protocols of the learned elders of zion to the forefront to the world so without sergei Millis, none of us would know about them so he is the center of this and so we're going to take a specific we're going to be taking a special look into him and his life and i think um after we analyze him as a person and his life it will give us a better sense of trusting whether or not the protocols of the learned elders of zion are real or is a real thing and so we will get into him and his life shortly after this article and uh he's an amazing guy a very fascinating character and i could do a whole other deep dive on him alone and so a lot of this is going to be centered around him because i think his life and his teachings are pretty weird and fascinating and so um yeah so the so the, the protocols were first published in his book that great and the small coming of the antichrist whatever and says here in the article, although the exact origin of the protocols is unknown, its intent was to portray Jews as conspirators against the state. In 24 chapters or, or protocols, and allegedly uh, these protocols were, were all just basically summarized minutes from meetings of jewish leaders the protocols describes the secret plans of jews to rule the world by manipulating the economy controlling the media and fostering religious conflict very enticing thing to believe honestly it's a very um yeah just very dramatic and and such an easy thing to to believe in such an easy uh agenda to scapegoat um in 90 so so this section here is fraud exposed in 1921 the london times presented conclusive proof that the protocols was a clumsy plagiarism the times confirmed that the protocols had been copied in large part from a french political satire that never mentioned jews Maurice Jolie's Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, um, coming from 1864. And other investigations revealed that one chapter of a Prussian novel um, in 1868 also inspired the protocols. And so, real quick, I actually, uh, I had G ChatGPT, which I use every now and then, just for a uh, cool little things like this kind of explain the similarities between the protocols and maurice jolly's a dial a dialogue in hell and it says here chad gpt our cool little ai buddy here said that uh the protocols of the learned elders of zion a notorious anti-semitic text purported to reveal a global conspiracy by jews to control the world has long been discredited as a malicious forgery its origins however trace back to another work the dialogue in hell between machiavelli and montesquieu written by maurice jolie in the 19th century um this essay explores the connections oh sorry not that part but um so the dialogue in hell maurice jolie was a french lawyer and political activist who penned the dialogue in hell between machiavelli and montesquieu in 1864 as a commentary on the political climate of his time 
Jolie used satire to criticize the authoritarian rule of Napoleon III, drawing parallels between the strategies of Machiavelli and the Enlightenment ideas of Montesquieu. In his work, Jolie warned against the dangers of unchecked political power and the manipulation of public opinion. Yeah, I have the the actual work pulled up here, which we'll take a look at in a second. And it's a fascinating piece of uh, political, sociopolitical uh, literature. I think it's it's an amazing work. And so the theory here is that um, whoever penned the alleged protocols of the learned elders, elders of Zion um, were influenced by Jolie's work and kind of transformed them into, uh, you know, some conspiratorial work, you know, um, that that is allegedly real that was um that came from some secret meeting of jews but the theory is that that uh the protocols are simply just an exaggerated fiction influenced by jolie's work and so our buddy here chat gpt says um Fast forward to the early 20th century and the political landscape had evolved. The protocols of the learned elders of Zion emerged during a tumultuous period marked by anti-Semitic sentiments and political unrest. This infamous document claiming to expose a Jewish conspiracy for, for global domination bore a striking resemblance to Jolie's work. The protocols shamelessly plagiarized and adapted sections from Jolie's dialogue. For instance, a comparison between Jolie's statement, we shall invest the president with the right of declaring a state of war, and the protocol's assertion, the president will, at our discretion, interpret the sense of such of the existing laws as admin of various interpretations, highlights the direct influence and appropriation. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to read through the entire dialogue by Jolie, but, uh, and I could have, but it's like a hundred something pages and I just got so much else that I'm working on right now, but I did find a really cool section for us to analyze. And I did find some sections in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion to compare it to, um, just like, as it said, right in that section. now. It chat GPT, of course, you know, it's, it's limited or whatever. Um, but it was saying here that one similarity is this part in Jolie's dialogue mentioning <clears throat> that the president will have the right to declare war, and then the protocols part where it says the president will at our discretion interpret laws and whatever, whatever. Obviously not a verbatim uh copy but similar similar aspects and they're both similar works as as uh the article was saying you know jolie's dialogue is a work of fiction it's a socio-political work of fiction that is um analyzing power analyzing political power and like the article said it's it's masking itself as a, a socio-political satire when in reality it was Jolie um, secretly uh, criticizing the authoritarian government of his time. And like I, like I said, it's an amazing piece of work that I think people should read. And the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, again, um, are similar 
but they pose to be actual documents from an authoritarian government, a secret authoritarian government who plans to act out the corruption, you know? So, <clears throat> um, so let's look at Jolie's work real quick. Where is it at? Here it is. So again, this work is, is supposed to be, it's a fiction of, of Montesquieu and Machiavelli in hell for some reason. I don't know why they have to be in hell, but they're in hell and they are bantering, debating um, political power. And so this is one section here where basically uh, Machiavelli says that if he, his style of government, his, his uh, secret, uh, sorry, his style of government, which would be a uh, secret authoritarian government, would uh, have the power to do whatever they want. And uh, Montesquieu says that um, technically, you know, the president or whatever does not have all the power because there are checks and balances. And so that's where the, the argument, uh, that's what the argument is. That's where the debate is. And so we're going to pick up right there. Um, where these two dudes are debating that fact or debating that theory, philosophy, principle, whatever, while in hell. So Machiavelli says here, if my power was threatened, it could only be so by factions. I would be guarded against them by the two essential rights that I have placed in my constitution, the appeal to the people and the right to put the country into a state of siege, martial law. I am chief of the army. I have all the public force in my hands. At the first signs of insurrection against my power, the bayonets would allow me to get the better of the resistance, and I would again find in the popular ballot a new consecration of my authority. Basically saying um, that they, he, could, he could just easily manipulate the populace. You know, like the, the power of the, we'll call it, um, New World Order government, um, as he says here, could only be uh, threatened by factions, right? By small groups. But all they would need to do, the New World Order government, is is uh, recalibrate or or uh, yeah, recalibrate the public <laughs> brainwashing and get the public back onto the program. You know, get the masses back onto the brainwash uh, program. And even further than that, the president has the power, as they say here, to put the country into a state of siege, martial law. So there's all these loopholes that the New World Order government can take in order to recalibrate everything back into the surveillance slave state. But here Montesquieu says, but let us return to the legislative body that you have installed. On this point, I do not see you to be clear of difficulties. You have deprived this assembly of parliamentary initiative, but it retains the right to vote upon the laws that you present to it for adoption. For, um, and no doubt you do not intend to let it exercise its right. So Montesquieu is hitting them back with a political chess move saying, ah, so you think you have all this new world order power, but there's the legislative body that can put you into check, which obviously is a freaking joke now. And Machiavelli says, you are more distrustful that I, because I confess to you that I do not see any difficulties here. Um, I don't even know. That's weird verbiage, man. Um, 
But he says here, since no other than myself can present laws, I have nothing to fear if someone does something against my power. Thus, I have said to you that it would be part of my plans to let the appearance of these institutions continue. I simply declare to you that I do not intend to leave to the chamber what you would call the right of amendment. It is obvious that, with the exercise of such a faculty, the law could be deflected from its original goal and the economy could be susceptible to being changed. The law must be accept or rejected. There can be no other alternative. Basically saying that this legislative body would still be under pressure of the New World Order presidency secret government hidden hand. And Montesquieu hits back by saying, but this faculty would not be needed to overthrow you. It would be sufficient if the legislative assembly systematically rejected all your proposed laws or if it refused to vote for any taxes to be levied. Again, Montesquieu uh, uh, relying on the legislative body to put the secret government in a check and balance system. And Machiavelli um, ends this debate right here pretty powerfully by saying you know perfectly well that things could not take place like that a chamber of whatever kind that through such an act of temerity hindered the movement of public affairs would be committing suicide basically saying that if the new world order government got the masses to want a certain thing even if it was damning to their own freedom unbeknownst to them and the legislative body tried to work against that, they would be committing suicide because they would be going against the mass opinion, the mass uh, brainwash. Furthermore, I would have a thousand means of neutralizing the power of such an assembly. I could reduce the number of representatives by half, and thus I would have half the political passion to combat. I would reserve for myself the nomination of the presidents and vice presidents who would lead the deliberations. In place of permanent sessions, I would reduce the tenure of the assembly to several months. I would specially do something that would be of a very great importance, something of which I pract the practice has already started, so one tells me. I would abolish the gratuity of the legislative mandate. I would have the deputies receive a sal salary their functions would be salaried. I regard this innovation as the surest means of tying the nation's representatives to my power. I do not need to develop this for you. The efficacy of these means is easily understood. I would add that, as the head of executive power, I would have the right to convoke or dissolve the legislative body, and in case of a dissolution, I would reserve for myself the longest periods of time to convoke a new one. I would understand perfectly well that the Legislative Assembly cannot remain independent of my power without presenting dangers to it, but be reassured, we will soon encounter other practical means of tying it in. Basically saying that um, he's going to make the legislative body employees, you know, constricted employees of the New World Order system, so they would be dependent on it. And that is exactly what we have today, basically, you know, so... Um, that's why lobbyists exist, right? Like all of all, the legislative body relies on their salaried uh, employment, relies on the lobbyist money and all that stuff. It's all corrupted by the money. And so Machiavelli, Machiavelli wins the argument, basically stating that all that would be needed 
to allow the new world order secret government to proceed is just greed money and so that's an amazing piece of uh, social political literature and again it's very similar to the protocols of the learned elders of zion and so some people think that whoever wrote the learn the protocols basically just were influenced by maurice jolie's work and i could i could see the similarities but but as we'll see they're they're not exactly the same right so let's get back to this article right here dun, dun, dun. where you at here it is make this smaller so the fraud exposed fraud exposed in 1935 a swiss court fined two nazi leaders for circulating a german language edition of the protocols in switzerland the presiding justice at the trial declared the protocols libelous obvious forgeries and ridiculous nonsense the u.s senate issued a report in 1964 declaring that the protocols were fabricated um the protocols today many school textbooks throughout the arab and islamic world teach the protocols as fact countless political speeches editorials and even children's cartoons are derived from the protocols in 2002 egypt egypt's government sponsored television aired uh Sorry, in 2002, Egypt's government-sponsored television aired a miniseries based on the protocols, an event condemned by the U.S. Department. The Palestinian organization Hamas draws in part on the protocols to justify its terrorism against Israeli civilians. So that's a little bit of its history. Um, and yeah, and it's unfortunate because we there, there's no conclusive evidence on who actually wrote it. It all centers around this guy sergei nilis who we're going to be taking a look at a bit deeper um where is it here oh here's okay so and I, and i have the actual protocols which we're going to dive into towards the end of this presentation but we're going to start getting a little into sergei nilis here so here's the actual protocols of the learned elders of zion uh translated from Nillis's original work by Victor E. Margeson. Um, this version is, it was published in 2014. All right, so this, this here's Sergei Nillis right here, this Russian mystic man. And so Nillis was a priest in the Orthodox Church in Russia. In his introduction of the protocols, he says that a manuscript had been handed to him about four years before by a friend who vouched that it was a true translation of an original document stolen by a woman from one of the most influential and highly initiated leaders of Freemasonry at the end of a meeting of the initiated in France. So that's the unfortunate thing. It's literally a he say, she say thing. So Nilis got it from a friend who got it from a woman who stole it from uh, some Freemasonry high priest guy or whatever. You know, so we don't really know who wrote it, if it's real or not. All we know is that Nilis got it from somebody who got it from somebody who got it from somebody. And apparently the protocols were transcripts of summarizations from Freemasonry meetings in which these agendas were spoken. 
And so Nillis adds that the protocols are a report with a part apparently missing made by some powerful person. Nillis admits the impossibility of producing written or oral proof of the authenticity of this document and says that we must be satisfied with the circumstantial evidence which abounds. In January 1917, Nillis, Nillis had prepared a second edition, but the revolution of March 1917 had taken place and Kerensky ordered the whole edition to be destroyed. Kerensky being the leader, um, I believe, of the Bolsheviks. Um, should have done a little research on that. But anyway, um, later Nillis was arrested by the Bolshevik Cheka, imprisoned and tortured. He was exiled and died in Vladimir on the 13th of January, 1929. And so again, the entire authenticity of the protocols of the learned elders of Zion rests solely on the integrity of Sergei Nilis. And even he himself admitted that, you know, there's no way to, to really prove that they're real. We simply just have to have faith in it. And there are, they are a very interesting piece of literature. I mean, they were way ahead of their time, even if they were fictitious or whatever. They are very New World Order-esque. And um, so I remember back in the day when I made my, my uh, Illuminati documentary, I didn't really believe Nilis. I didn't look too much into his life as I did this time. So I didn't really believe him. I thought he was kind of a quack, to be honest. I thought he was a fanatical. But honestly, after diving into his life more so this time, I realized he's, he's actually a very integritous and honest man. And so it adds a lot of value to the whole conspiracy behind the uh, protocols. So that's, this is Victor E. Marchson, the guy who translated Nillis's work into the English version. Um, and he's pretty interesting too. Says here, Victor E. Marchson lived for many years in Russia and was married to a Russian lady. He had been for a number of years a Russian correspondent to the Morning Post. The Morning Post was a very popular and um, uh, so we're popular and yeah, anyways popular newspaper <laughs> out of out of that time and. Um, Naturally, he was singled out for the anger of the Soviet. Victor Marchin was arrested and thrown into the Peter Paul prison, expecting every day to have his name called out for execution. This, however, he escaped, and eventually he was allowed to return to England, very much of a wreck in bodily health. One of the first things he undertook as soon as he was able as soon as he was able was this translation of the protocols. He told the writer of this preface that he could not stand more than an hour at a time of his work on it in the British Museum, as the diabolical spirit of the matter, which he was obliged to turn into English, made him positively ill. And so I think all of that kind of adds to the value of the protocols as a possible um, non-fiction work, as a possible real manuscript for the takeover of the world. Because both of these men face real political uh, condemnation. I mean, they were imprisoned, tortured, and that says a lot um, about the protocols for, um, that uh, Marchson 
translated them as soon as soon as he got out of jail i mean as soon as he got out of prison one of the first things he did was was go to this work and translate it i mean that's how important it was to him and so that adds value to it i would say for sure um let's see here so and and also, again this whole this whole revolution that they're speaking about was the bolshevik revolution and i didn't add that part of it into this presentation but I'm sure many of you have heard uh, the conspiracy behind the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, apparently, there's a theory out there, which I haven't um, fully analyzed. But the theory is that, that the whole Bolshevik Revolution Bolshevik Revolution was actually a part of this whole uh, Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. It was basically instigated, designed by the uh, shadowy elite, who some would say were the Jewish elite, to change europe and to, to change it towards the international uh new world order government and so nilis and martin were uh part of a well, they were a part of the um revolutionaries who were against this whole bolshevik takeover this whole fascist communist type takeover and saw it as a part of the protocol plan and agenda all right so going back to this intro to the protocols um okay and this is an interesting fact here so mr henry ford right the famous uh, car mogul in an interview published in new york in the new york world february 17th 1921 uh, put the case for nilis tersely and convincingly thus saying um, in response to the protocols that the only statement i care to make about the protocols is that they fit in with what is going on they are 16 years old and they have been fitted and they have fitted the world situation up to this time they fit it now and so uh basically henry ford was saying that they're they are real that they are true you know but that's kind of bias because henry ford was <laughs> a stark anti-semitic um as i have here in this article titled henry ford and an, an anti-semitism a complex story so henry ford was convinced that bankers and the jews were responsible for a whole range of things he didn't like ford used his newspaper the Dearborn Independent, to carry on an active anti-Semitic campaign. Between 1920 and 1922, a series of articles denounced all things Jewish. Um, yeah, so for like, I, I, th I think it was, I, don't, I thought I had it in this article, but for um, years, Henry Ford literally just ran headline articles just condemning the jewish people and saying that they were uh trying to take over the world and so he believed the protocols but again he was biased because he already had some anti-semitic impulses <laughs> he was a pretty wild man dude just straight up running newspaper headlines every day for years just the jews are trying to take over the world uh but that's interesting that's interesting that he read them he knew about them and that he believed they were real which I think doesn't add value to the whole thing because he was an obvious anti-Semitic, you know, and just was like, so he was probably super just like amped off this whole thing. Like, yeah, fuck that. Fuck them, dude. They're trying to take over the world. 
or whatever. All right, so the presumption is strong that the protocols were issued or reissued at the first Zionist Congress held in Basel in 1897 under the presidency of the father of modern Zionism, the late Theodore Herzl. And so obviously Zionism um, was instituted by Theodore Herzl in the late 19th century. And so he's the man behind Zionism and behind the whole secular uh, institution of Judaism, of the Israel state. And so some people believe that the protocols of the learned elders of Zion came out of the Zionist Congress, the Zionist meetings and institution that was started by Theodore Herzl. Um, there are some similarities, as some have pointed out, to the protocols and um, these pioneers and leaders of the early Zionist movement. Herzl's Diaries, a translation which appeared in the Jewish Chronicle of July 14th, 1922, uh, give account of his first visit to England in 1895 and his conversation with Colonel Goldsmith, a Jew brought up as a Christian, an officer in the English army, and at heart a Jew nationalist all the time. Goldsmith suggested to Herzl that the best way of expropriating the English aristocracy aristocracy and so destroying their power to protect the people of england against jew domination was to put excessive taxes on the land um hold up wait what so goldsmith suggested to herzl that the best way of expropriating the english aristocracy so like getting rid of them and taking their money and so destroying their power okay so the best way to expropriate the english aristocracy and destroy their power to protect the people um, of England against Jew domination was to put excessive taxes on the land. Herzl thought this an excellent idea, and it is now to be found de definitely embodied in the protocols. So basically saying this meeting between this Colonel Goldsmith and, and uh, Herzl uh, created the idea, or whatever, fomented the idea that in, in order to to rid England of its financial power and its ability to protect its people um, would be to institute taxes, I guess, on the land. And so to slowly over time kind of rid them of their financial power. And without financial power, you have no political power. And so thus you are weakened. And... Uh, Successor of Herzl, Dr. Wiseman, quoted one of these sayings, uh, one of the sayings in the protocols at the send-off banquet given, given to Chief Rabbi Hertz on October 6, 1920. And this is the saying of the sages which Dr. Wiseman quoted. A beneficent protection which God has instituted in the life of the Jew is that he has dispersed him all over the world. So that's what Dr. Wiseman said at this banquet. And now we compare this with uh, a saying right out of the protocols, which says, God has granted to us, his chosen people, the gift of dispersion. And from this, which appears to all eyes to be our weakness, has come forth all our strength, which has now brought us to the threshold of sovereignty over all the world. And so th there are these little instances, I guess when um jewish elite 
in public say or do things that are in comparison very similar to what is stated in the protocols of the learned elders of zion which does not help the case for them being a forgery or fictional seems to be very real and in practice but again that's that's up to you you can make your own conclusion all right and so the review des etudes juvias i don't even know if i said that right but um uh, i guess some magazine or something financed by james de rothschild published in 1889 two documents uh, which showed how true the protocols are on January 13th, 1489, Shemor, Jewish rabbi of Arles in province, wrote to the Grand Sanhedrin, which had its seat in Constantinople, for advice as the people of Arles were threatening the synagogues. What should the Jews do? This was the reply from the Grand Sanhedrin, the center of the Jewish institution. The advice of the grand satraps and rabbis is the following. 1. As for what you say that the king of France obliges you to become Christians, do it, since you cannot do otherwise, but let the law of Moses be kept in your hearts. As for what you say about the command to despoil you of your goods, the law was that on becoming converted Jews gave up their possessions, make your sons merchants that little by little they may despoil the Christians of theirs. Um, yeah, so basically saying that the government was forcing the Jews to give up their goods, so he's saying, you know, the, the, the Sanhedrin is saying, um, make your children merchants. Make the, you know, allow them or teach them to infiltrate the markets so that they can um, take the riches of the people, right? The consumers. Stack a dollar at a by stack one dollar at a time as I'm just a little humble merchant. I'm just a little shoemaker, but slowly but slowly we're gonna stack our money together and take over. That's what he's saying. Number three, as for what you say about their making attempts on your lives, make your sons doctors and apothecaries that they may take away Christians' lives. Spooky. Um, as for what you say of their destroying your synagogues, make your sons canons and clerics in order that they may destroy their churches. As for the many other vexations you complain of, arrange that your sons become advocates and lawyers and see that they always mix themselves up with the affairs of the state in order that by putting Christians under your yoke, you may dominate the world and be avenged on them. Do not swerve from this order that we give you, because you will find by experience that, humiliated as you are, you win, reach the actuality of power. Signed by the Prince of the Jews, 21st Caslu, November 1489. Yeah, man, spooky stuff, you know. Um, so, in the, in the protocols, and even stated by the Jewish elite, they have realized that their dispersion or them being a people with no land is actually a benefit and a gift granted to them by God because this means they're not destined to one land, they are destined to the entire 
world. Uh-oh. Damn. I hope I don't get canceled, bruh. Look, again, I'm just reporting what people are saying, what the history and the conspiracy is. I honestly don't give a fuck, man, because you know why? Nobody rules my world, dude. There is no government. It's all a lie. It's all an illusion. The, the power is an illusion. When you woke up today, was there somebody forcing you to get out of bed? I mean, obviously your alarm clock work or whatever, but what I'm saying is there's, there's nobody ruling you. It's all an illusion. You are a celestial, divine, sovereign being. Okay. They, they might rule the world, the country, but they don't rule the universe. Nobody rules the solar system. It's all an illusion, man. Nobody rules me. I don't care what these secret Jews are doing. I don't care what the secret, uh, you know, Jehovah witnesses are doing or whatever, man. Okay. They're all weirdos. Doesn't affect me and it shouldn't affect you. Although in some senses it does affect us, right? You know, I, I, my heart goes out to the people who are physically affected by this, by the effects of war and stuff like that, you know, but mentally, man, consciously in the heart, walk as if none of this affects you because it's all an illusion. All right. So, um, we'll get, we'll come back to the actual protocols, but I want to dive into, um, Sir Guy Nillis. Wait, before we do that, I thought there was more. Um, yeah, yeah. Before we do that, I want to dive a little more into just some other uh, interesting historical facts about other people that were influenced by the protocols. Obviously, Hitler and the Nazis were heavily influenced by a lot of this stuff. Um, but in specific, Hitler was introduced to the protocols by um, a dude by the name of Alfred Rosenberg, who was Hitler's chief ideologue. So in the diary of Alfred Rosenberg, we read that Rosenberg was, or we, we find that Rosenberg was more than just a writer. From 1923 onwards, he edited the party's daily newspaper. And in 1928, he founded and ran a crusading organization, the Fighting League for German Culture, dedicated to rooting out degenerate art, books, plays, and other cultural products from the German public scene. During the war, he headed up the Reichsleiter Rosenberg Task Force, which began by collecting Jewish artifacts for a, pro for a projected museum for the study of what he hoped would soon be an extinct race, but quickly graduated to looting artworks, manuscripts, and other treasures from Jews sent to the camps. That's fucking wild, dude. Honestly, that was just so wild. That was such a crazy time in human history. It's so fascinating to me. It's, it's unfortunate, but just so wild man like i feel like that and i understand why the history channel is always like making documentaries about it because it was almost like the center of everything you know because the center of human history which everything pivots i believe you know i mean i feel like the first major historical uh landmark if you will or event in which everything else pivoted around was the coming of christ the life death and resurrection of christ um 
be it real or not, that was like the very first pivotal moment in which everything else uh, swivels around, revolves around. But this event was like the next big one, which everything else pivots, pivots around. Because everything in history led up to Jesus. If you understand the mythological progression uh, of our human history, right? The Anunnaki, Babylonians, all this stuff. And you can see how it all kind of led up to Christ and then the expulsion of the Anunnaki and the polytheism and, and paganism and all that. And then transitioned us into this new age of Abrahamic um, dogmatism, right? So it's like everything led up to Jesus in order for everything afterward to occur. And it's the same with the, the whole Nazi event, I believe, like, because the whole Nazism centers around the Jews. And so there would be no Jews, there would be no Jewish power or whatever, had it not been for monotheism, right? Monotheism and the death of Christ and that whole contention. And so it's like, it came to Christ, that, that we had that pivoting moment of Christ, and then it caused a contention in the world, a tension in the world between the Abrahamic faiths, between the races, the cultures, and then all of that tension built up to the event of the Nazis and, and the Holocaust, which now everything, again, pivots around, right? Because everything led up to that, and now the world changed after that, and now we have another contention, another series of tension in which the world is uh, operating from which wouldn't have happened had it not been for that effective moment of the jews and the nazis i'm having deja vu right now this is weird all right uh anyways so uh after rosenberg was captured by allied troops at the end of the war he was tried for his crimes and executed crazy while he was in prison rosenberg wrote an autobiography published in 1955 in which far from showing any sign of remorse he asserted his belief that national socialism was a european answer to the question of the century it was a genuine social worldview and an ideal of blood conditioned cultural purity um just a wild guy man like most of them and so he was the dude that introduced hitler to the protocols there he is right there very uh mysterious ambiguous figure right next to the motherfucking monster of the millennia hitler i don't even know if monster is the right word he's just a fucking maniac the drug induced occultic maniac messiah of the demons i don't know you know what i'm saying he was like the fucking opposite of a messiah you know like just like the 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 um dark multiverse opposite of the messiah this is crazy that's actually fucking crazy now to think about it it's like because the Jews have been waiting for a Messiah, right? Like, that's the whole thing. They've been waiting for the, the Mashiach. What is it? Mashiach? The Messiah? How messed up is that, bro? Like, they've been waiting and waiting for a Messiah. And the answer that they got was, like, the complete opposite of Messiah. 
a world leader who was sent to fucking destroy and obliterate them. It's kind of weird. It's like, what the fuck, you know? Like, who answered that call? The demiurge? Like, it just makes me feel like we are living in a backwards, mirrored dimension where everything's demented. Like, Hitler was the demented, demonic, occult messiah who came <laughs> to set the captives more captive, you know, who came to set the people captive. Oh my gosh. Just craziness, dude. Nothing but craziness. All right. And so, uh, Sergei Nilis, brother and sister, let's get into it. Right. So again, the entire, uh, validity of the protocols of the learned elders of zion centers on sergei nilis the russian mystic who brought them forth to the world after receiving them from a friend who got them from a woman who stole them from a french freemasonic high leader right Okay, so, Sergei Nilis, Sergius Alexandrovich, as he was born, uh, his parents were nobles and landowners, major ones, moreover. However, they could not escape the general, so to speak, platonic revolutionary spirit of the times. And he says here, and real quick, so what I'm reading here is, is, uh, I don't even know. It's like an essay or, or a small book known as The Way of the Orthodox. I don't know who wrote it, um, but it's an amazing piece of work on Sergei Nilis's life. And it has quotations from his actual books and, and biographies, autobiography. And so we'll get direct quotes from the man himself. And so he says here, this is a quote from Sergei Nilis. I grew up in complete alienation from the church, I learned the law of God from teachers who were indifferent, if not outrightly hostile, to the word of God as an intractable necessity of the school's program. So, Sir Guy Nilis grew up in a wealthy family of uh, revolutionaries, of uh, secular intellectualists. You know, so he didn't grow up in a spiritual family. His, his parents were aristocratic intellectuals. But under all the spiritual abomination which accumulated in the course of the years of the freedom of religious education and family, school, and finally public life, the silent but loved Phil lessons of Moscow, of the country, and of Nanny, his grandma, the boundless Christian kindness of my mother, who ceaselessly did good to her neighbor with the meekness that belongs only to Christians, all this did not allow the spark to go out in my soul. All right, so apparently his mom was Christian, but she didn't push it on him. And I know um, through this article, which I did not highlight, that his grandma would also sit down and kind of give him some lessons on the Bible and stuff. And so that spark in his soul hardly twinkled in my soul's darkness, he says here. When I received communion, I had what was for me a strange, incomprehensible, secret feeling of trembling, which for a long, long time I did not want to admit to myself. Something came to fruition in my soul, 
I began to be visited more often by a thirst for prayer, a thirst which I was not clearly conscious of and which was sometimes even violently drowned out by everyday cares. And so, Sergei went to Trinity, St. Sergius Lavra, which is uh, the most important, uh, what's it called, church in Russia. So, I have it pulled up here. So, he went here. He went to what is known as the Holy Trinity, St. Sergius Lavra, which is like this amazing and most important monastery in Russia of the Russian Orthodox. Yeah, so it's just this super really big, nice Russian church. And so he went there on, in his younger life, and as he says here, I fell on my knees in front of the shrine containing the holy, the holy relics of St. Sergius, and for the first time in my life, surrendered to a wonderful feeling of prayer. Involuntary, grace-given tears welled up somewhere deep in my heart. This was a deep, irrevocable faith in which creator and creature are invisibly united into one, in which the reverent gratitude of the creatures raises it to the very one who has created it. But the enemy of the human race cannot leave even one soul in peace, still less one who is on the path of conversion. I was no longer the former man, but I had, but I had, but I had not yet become a new one. I resonate with that so much. After learning more about him and reading his works, I really like him as a person. And again, it adds value to the um, alleged authenticity of the protocols. But I really like that statement right there. I was no longer the former man, but I had not yet become a new one. I am very much in that state right now. I am ridding myself of old habits, of old traumas, and all kinds of things. But I'm not yet the man that I want to be, that I wish to be. But I am in transition, that's for sure. And um, if anybody else is in that place in life, just know you got this. You know, you got this and you will shine forth and, and uh, break out of the cocoon and resonate and align with your higher self. It will happen. He says here, the world and its delights had lost their significance for me. I somehow became detached from people, but the emptiness left by them in my soul did not find its fulfillment. Wow, again, I can resonate with that. I resonate with that and can relate to that very much right now. I have no interest, honestly, to like go out into the world and hang out and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I like to be social, sociable and socialize and stuff like that, but I'd be lying to myself if I said there isn't a detachment that is occurring right now like i just don't see you know the benefit anymore i don't know I don't, I don't feel the need energetically to go out there and be a part of the world right now but he says here i was visited occasionally by a prayerful mood i acquired a greater taste for reading the holy scriptures and i rest i rested my attention on meditations on them more often and more deeply than before Sergius Alexandrovich heard about the great man of prayer, John of Kronstadt, and decided to meet him in February 1900 when he had caught a cold and had lost his voice. Friar John 
took me in a glance, a piercing, penetrating glance, like lightning, which revealed all my past and the wounds of my present, and pierced, as it seemed, even into my future. I felt so stripped that I began to be ashamed of myself and my nakedness. In reply, I could not utter even a sound. My throat was simply not up to it. Friar John gave me the cross to kiss, put it on the analogion, I don't know, and then with two fingers of his right hand, stroked my throat behind the collar of my shirt three times. My fever immediately left me, and my voice returned to me, sounding fresher and purer than usual. It is hard to convey in words what took place in my soul then. For more than half an hour, as I knelt at the feet of my longed-for comforter, I told him about my sorrows, opened to him the whole of my sinful soul, and offered repentance for everything that lay like a heavy stone on my heart. That was the first true repentance in the whole of my life. For the first time with my whole being, I understood the significance of the spiritual father as the witness of this great sacrament. For the first time, I felt with all my heart that God, God himself, was sending me his forgiveness through the lips of the pastor and graced by him. When Friar John said, God is very merciful, God will forgive. What ineffable joy I felt. With sacred trembling was my soul filled at these love-filled, all-forgiving words. So something was happening inside Sir Guy Nilles. He was beginning to change. He was beginning to see the deeper mysteries of life unfold in front of him as he became a religious and spiritual man. Sergius Alexandrovic traveled much around Russia and in, its, and in its secret corners. He listened to and drank in every word that the simple people let fall. He began to travel, you know, as a mystic and observe the world. Uh, Sergei alone or with his wife stayed in Optina Hermitage. He lived for a long time in his last, in this last outpost of Russian mo monasticism. After these visits, there poured out from under his pen remarkable books. Yeah, again, he's got some amazing books, most of them in Russian, but they're, they're amazing works of mystical and religious conspiratorialism. It is precisely to Sergei Nilis that we are indebted for the discovery and deciphering of the con conversation of Saint Seraphim with Nicholas Alexandrovich Motovilov on the acquisition of the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, so he, he discovered this like manuscript, which was a conversation between uh, Saint Seraphim, who was a popular mystic before Sergei, and his student Nicholas. And uh, Sergei recalls here, if only someone could have seen the state in which I acquired Matavilov's papers, which preserved in their hidden, hidden depths this valuable witness to the God-pleasing life of the holy elder, dust, pebbles and dove's feathers, birds' droppings, all the papers were old, written on in a rapid and indecipherable hand, so indecipherable that I was simply horrified. I remember almost giving away to despair, but then a, a phrase deciphered with difficulty would shine like a spark in the darkness. What did these uninterpreted hieroglyphs hide in themselves? I was in despair. I remember that towards the evening of a whole day spent in stubbornly fruitless work, I could bear it no longer and cried out, Batyush, Batyushka, Batyushka Seraphim, 
Father Seraphim, did you give me the possibility of receiving the manuscripts of your lay brother from such a distant spot as Divievo in order that they should be consigned uninterpreted to oblivion? My cry must have been from the heart. In the morning, having set about deciphering papers, I suddenly found this manuscript and immediately received the ability to make out Matavilov's handwriting. You can well imagine my joy and how significant seemed to me the words of the manuscript. Um, so I wanted to add this part because, it, again, I think it adds to the attestment of Sergei Nilis's integrity. You know, he was obviously a deeply mystical person who had a deep passion for um, religion and for humanity and for the spiritual and mystical works of humanity. And so this Saint Seraphim guy is a trip too. I, uh, I had one of his works pulled up. Where did it go? Where did it go? Uh, well, I lost it, but, um, I, I pulled up that work that he translated the conversation between Seraphim and Nicholas. And it's a, it's actually a very amazing work, a very wise, um, religious and spiritual work. Saint Seraphim was a G and in that work, he talks about, um, basically the importance of leading a spiritual life and what the, what the purpose of life is. And he basically says that the purpose of life is to lead a life um for christ and towards christ and that nothing else should be our purpose that everything we should do in a sort of taoistic way should be for christ everything we do every thought we have every action we have should all be leading towards christ in our um love praise for him and so that we can be accepted by him right um it's a lot deeper than that it's an amazing work but here's Saint Seraphim right there, yo. Interesting Russian mystic guy. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick though. Cause there was a quote on there that was like pretty badass. But yeah, it's it's titled A Conversation of Saint Seraphim of Serov with Nicholas Motovilov concerning the aim of a Christian life. Yeah, it's it's cool, man. Very interesting. He talks about acquiring God's spirit. That's what he says right here. So he says the true aim of our Christian life, while prayer, watching, fasting, almsgiving, and other good works done for Christ's sakes are the only means for acquiring the spirit of God. Um, he says, well, so in, in acquiring the spirit of God consists the true aim of our Christian life. And says to acquire is the same as to gain. You understand what acquiring money means. Acquiring God's spirit is all the same. You know well enough what it means in the worldly sense, my son, to acquire. The aim in life of ordinary people is to acquire or make money. And for the nobility, it is in addition to receive honors, distinctions, and other rewards for their services to the government. The acquisition of God's spirit is also capital, but grace-giving and eternal. And it is gained in very similar ways almost the same ways as monetary, social, and temporal capital. Bam! St. Seraphim, the G, basically saying we have the secular matrix we live in, which, again, is the demented, mirrored, altered dimension of what God intended for us. In this monetary matrix, we go out there and we 
we live our lives and do everything for what? For money, for the institution. And once we are rich, we maintain our riches and express the riches so that we can receive honors and dedications and awards. So we're doing all of this for nothing. We're doing all of this for a meaningless fiat currency and stupid little statues and pieces of certificates and fame or whatever, you know, just clapping each other on, you know, it's the demented, altered, mirrored dimension aspect of what we should be doing, which St. Seraphim says um, is very similar to that. But instead of doing it for money, doing it for recognition of, of, from the institutions, we're doing it for um, Christ and for God and for their recognition, you know, and, and for their currency, which is eternal life. Yeah, man, that's pretty fascinating stuff. I like it, man. It's spiritual banger. Um, so, yeah, so uh, Sir Guy Nilis brought that work to us, you know. Um, ceaselessly working to trans translate that and i think that adds to the value of his integrity and who he was as a person and again you know has value to whether or not the protocols are real and prince nicholas davidovich zivikov wrote in his memoirs about sergei nilis saying that he did not think up or compose anything he preferred to live near the famous Russian monasteries and use the monastery libraries. He extracted from the wealthy monastic archives valuable material and reworked it. Being a truly orthodox Christian, Sergei Nilis fervently loved his own people and deeply understood the heavy burden of that time, sincere, sincere, uh, sincerely experiencing it in his heart. Again, this adds to his personal, his, his personality. And who he was, you know, he didn't. He says here he did not think up or compose anything, you know. He he simply translated or presented works. I mean, obviously he was an author, so he wrote things. But I think he was this guy was saying like, you know, everything that he did was for the people. It was for God. You know, he wasn't simply just making stuff just just for it to be entertainment. Uh, no one was taken by surprise by the revolution of 1917 in Russia. Some prepared it, others prepared themselves for it. The, cat the catastrophe was inevitable. Sergei considered it his Christian duty to warn not only the Orthodox people, but also the whole world about the terrible times that were coming. In 1903, there appeared the first edition of his remarkable book, The Great and the Small. This book is deeply Orthodox. Nilis approached the question of the signs for telling the appearance of the Antichrist in a churchly manner. He says here, the events of contemporary world and Russian life, and also my dealings with the people who have devoted their whole life and all their activity to the service in spirit and in truth, in the likeness and truth of real Christianity, have revealed to me something new, great and terrible, the depths of Satan. This revelation, which was drawn from observations of the current spiritual and political life of Christian peoples and the study of the secrets of the religious sects of the East, and in, particularly, and in particular masonry, have given me material of such enormous importance that I would consider myself a turncoat traitor of Christ, my God, if I did not share this material with the God-loving reader. Again, you know, he was a mystical, religious, spiritual man. Um, he was he was a scholar 
You know, he was a scholar, a reporter of truth. And so anything that came his way, anything that he found that he felt was of importance and real and authentic, he felt the need to share. And um, so, yeah, some of his more important books were about the Antichrist and, and the coming New World Order age. And so, um, one of the things that he felt that he had to report to us was, as he says here, the imminent triumph of the whole Christian faith is coming, but the imminent triumph of the faith has also brought closer the terrible anti-Christian time of persecutions against the faith. And it's wild because he's writing this, uh, you know, about half a century before the Nazi persecutions, which I just think is interesting. The most famous part of Nilis's literary output, and the part which especially drew upon him the wrath of the Bolsheviks and the opprobrium of the Western historians, was the section entitled The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. These were the records of meetings in Paris of the leaders of international masonry, in which the Masonic plan for the subjugation of the Christian nations and the establishment of Jewish dominion over the whole world was formulated in detail. First published in 1902 in a St. Petersburg periodical that came out in 1905 in book form in Nilis's The Great in the Small and the Antichrist. Now, Nilis was genuinely convinced of their authenticity. Um, but after the revolution, when the prophetic significance of the protocols became clear to many, the Bolsheviks tried by all means to have the remaining copies destroyed. So that's interesting how uh, the Bolsheviks attempted to destroy these copies. The martyr, Empress, the martyr Empress had a copy, as she noted in her diary under April 7, 10, 1918. Nicholas read to us the protocols of the Masons. And so this martyr princess was um, the princess prior to the Bolsheviks known as Sarasita Alexandria. And there is a diary of hers, or well, she has a lot of diaries, but there is a mention of the protocols in her diary, which I hear I have. It says here in the footnotes. Um, oh man, what the heck? Yeah, so this Empress Sarit, Saritza Alexandra, Saritza Alexandra the empress consort of Nicholas II, emperor of Russia, um, was taken out by the Bolsheviks, the communist fascist people, knew about the protocols and read them. It says here in the footnote of one of her diaries, um, yesterday I started to read aloud Nilis's book on the Antichrist, to which have been added the protocols of the Jews and Masons, very timely re reading manner. And so, uh, yeah, very timely. Yeah, she was taken out shortly after. But I think that's interesting how she knew about them and uh, read them. And, and so, getting back to Nilus, he says here in his spiritual mind, in the woes and sorrows which like a narrow heavy ring have oppressed your wandering along the paths of life from all sides and which have become so much more difficult in recent times have you ever given a thought O oh reader to the final and only common end for all those who live upon the earth of their labors and efforts 
all their sorrows and joys, disillusionments and hopes, love and hate, good and evil, everything in a word out of which the thorny crown of life is woven? Do you even fully know what this end is like? And if you know, do you remember it with that careful thought which its importance merits? I don't think so. So allow me, my reader and brother in Christ, to remind you, whoever you may be, a ruler of the peoples or a poor homeless man, that there is no other end to your life than death, than preparation for death. Oh, how great and terrible is that word, that reality, and how few people in the world think about it. Remember the honor of your death and you will not sin to eternity, calls our mother the church. You will not sin to eternity. Do you hear what she says? We have forgotten about this hour, which none can escape. And yet what have we churned the whole world? And yet what have we churned the whole world that surrounds into through our sins? We have forgotten about death, public and family quarrels leading to bloodshed in which sons raise their hands against their fathers and mothers brothers against brothers, husbands against wives, wives against husbands, civil strife in which public garbage and our youth that has been diverted and made senseless by anti-theist teaching rises up in mindless blindness against the powers that be and against everyone that lives in accordance with the commandments of God and not according to the elements of this world. Blood is shed in torrents, and the scythe of death mows down such an abundant harvest that the heart grows cold in horror. It seems that the times have come about which the faithful Christians were warned by the threatening, by the threatening word of the Holy Scripture, that blood will reach the horse's bridles. And if those days should not be shortened for the sake of the, of the elect, no flesh would be saved. And yet, people see all this, they see all the horrors of death, but few are those who think about death. And as if only they, among those who are temporarily left among the living, have a guarantee of eternal life upon earth, a guarantee only they know about, and as if only those who are dead were predestined to death. I will judge you as I find you. Savage is the death of sinners. It is terrible for the sinner to fall into the hands of the living God in that desired world in which the faces of the saints and the righteous shine like the stars. That is a pretty harrowing message right there, man. You know, he's saying, our time here is limited. Do not be arrogant and remember that your hour will be faced. And so what are you doing with your life prior to that hour? And how will you face that hour? Sergei Nilis also known as Sergius Alexandrovich, died peacefully in Soviet Russia in which those who read his books were threatened with death by shooting. Being completely poor, he miraculously received sustenance in the Bolsheviks' land and himself shared his last clothes with others. And Prince N.D. Zevakov in his memoirs describes the last years of Sergei saying, it goes without saying that none of the local Soviets composed of criminals caused Sergei Nilis the slightest concern, for it goes without saying they did not suspect him of being the publisher of the Protocols of Zion. Some considered that he had died long ago, while even thought that he never even existed. Yeah, he was a, a humble, low-key mystic who led a very interesting life filled with miracles, 
um, amazing feats of mysticism. Um, and he was faced with, you know, opposition, political opposition, endured political imprisonment and torture, all of that to bring us the message of God, the truth of the Antichrist, New World Order world, all of that. And so I wanted to read you all that so that you have that as a background when you read the protocols or you see any videos or TikToks or whatever about the protocols and ask yourself whether or not they're real because their entire uh, authenticity relies on the integrity of Sergei Nilis. You know, um, but again, there are so many similarities to the protocols and the actual world we live in and a lot of statements that have been declared by certain elites throughout the decades and now centuries. So that's it on Nilis. And uh, with that being said, man, we're going to dive a little bit into the protocols. Uh, I'm not going to recite all of them. You can go check them out for yourself. I just want to recite certain quotes up to about halfway through the protocols. There's 24 of them, 24 protocols. In total, it's close to about 100 pages. Um, there's 24 of them. I only want to examine the first 12 and read you a couple quotes so that we can examine them and ask ourselves, well, is this the world we live? Is this the world we are living in? Whoever wrote these, whoever did, whoever write these, uh, achieve their goal. We'll see. All right. So, protocol number one: It must be noted that men with bad instincts are more in number than the good, and therefore the best results in governing them are attained by violence and terrorization, and not by academic discussions. Political freedom is an idea but not a fact. Is it possible for any sound logical mind to hope with any success to guide crowds by the aid of reasonable counsels and arguments when any objection or contradiction, senseless though it may be, can be made and when such objection may find more favor with the people whose powers are, of reasoning are superficial? Men in masses and the men of the masses being guided solely by petty passions, paltry beliefs, customs, traditions, and sentimental theorism, fall a prey to party dissension, which hinders any kind of agreement, even on the basis of a perfectly reasonable argument. So they're opening it up by saying that we are flawed. We as humans are flawed. We as society are dumb and we can't govern ourselves. And we are evil. We are inherently evil and immoral. And by that fact, it gives the shadowy elite a right and a duty to rule over us in secret, which is very Illuminati-esque um, of them to say. Protocol number two. It is indispensable for our purpose that wars be brought onto the economic ground. This state of things will put both sides at the mercy of our international agent tour. Our international rights will then wipe out national rights and will rule the nations precisely as the civil law of states rule the relations of their subjects among themselves. Basically saying that they, they will issue uh, globalism, you know, break down countries economically and institutionally to institute globalism in which the top of that globalist pyramid will 
rule the states, the countries of the globalist system. Protocol number three. Um, oh, I guess I didn't quote anything in protocol number three. Protocol number four. It is indispensable for us to undermine all faith, to tear out the minds of the Goyim, the very principle of Godhead and the spirit, and to put in its place arithmetic, uh, arithmetical calculations and material needs in order to give the Goyim no time to think and take note. Their minds must be diverted towards industry and trade. Basically saying, you know, take church out of our minds, take God out of our minds, and instead implement uh, material needs and wants and desires. Protocol number five, we shall regulate mechanically all the actions of the political life of our subjects by new laws. These laws will withdraw one by one all the indulgences and liberties which have been permitted by the Goyim, and our kingdom will be distinguished by a despotism of such magnificent proportions as to be at any moment and in every place in a position to wipe out any Goyim who opposes us by deed or by word. So again, uh, instituting new laws, new laws that go against the cost constitutions of the countries that will be used to, to manipulate people, to condemn them. Moreover, the art of directing masses and individuals by means of cleverly, cleverly manipulated theory and verbiage, clever theory and verbiage, very similar to what we're seeing today, by regulations of life in common and all sorts of other quirks, in all which the Goyim understand nothing, belongs likewise to the specialists of our administrative brain. Wow. So saying they're going to infiltrate the administrative sectors of life, the institutions of life, change laws, change rules, and use those change laws and rules to manipulate us and uh, position themselves in places of power where they normally would not have been powerful. The principal object of our directorate consists in this. To debilitate the public mind by criticism, cancel culture, A, to lead it away from serious reflections calculated to arouse resistance, to distract the forces of the mind towards a sham fight of empty eloquence, get us to fight on trivial matters rather than uniting. Protocol number six. We shall soon begin to establish huge monopolies, reservoirs of colossal riches, upon which even large fortunes of the Goyim will depend to such an extent that they will go to the bottom together with the credit of the states on the day after the political smash. Political smash, economic crash. Yeah, basically saying they're going to position themselves to be a sort of BlackRock institution where they own all the fortune in which even the richest people will have to rely on them, you know, financially speaking. For, I mean, because that's, that's the name of the game, right? Economy. Whoever owns most of the institutions, whoever owns the credits, the banks, all that stuff, owns all the money that flows in and out of it. It says here, we shall raise the rate of wages, which, however, will not bring any advantage to the workers. For at that same time, we shall produce a rise in prices for the first necessities of life basic necessities, alleging that it arises from the decline of agriculture and cattle breeding, 
we shall further undermine artfully and deeply sources of production by accustoming the workers to anarchy and to drunkenness and side by side therewith taking all measure to extirpate from the face of the earth all the educated forces of the goyim wow yeah so raise wages while ra and raising prices so raising wages means that the owners of the businesses are losing out on money um, but the fact that prices for everyday life necessities are, are also being raised means that the workers aren't benefiting benefiting at all and if anything are also losing so it's a clever way to slowly um, impede everybody the workers and the owners from gaining any true success or wealth in life and just being stagnant it's fucked up man protocol seven the the intensification of armaments the increase of pol of police forces are all essential for the completion of the aforementioned plans police state man they want a police state throughout all europe and by means of relations with europe in other continents also we must create ferments discords and hostility therein we gain a double advantage in the first place we keep in check all countries for they well know that we have the power whenever we like to create disorders or to restore order order out of chaos order ab cow the old illuminati saying protocol eight we shall surround our government with a whole world of, of economists that is the reason why economic sciences from the principal subject of the teaching given to the jews uh, around us again will be a whole constellation of bankers industrialists capitalists and the main thing millionaires because in substance everything will be settled by the question of figures by money okay okay protocol number nine the words of the liberal which are in effect the words of our masonic watchword namely liberty equality fraternity will be changed by us into the right of liberty the duty of equality and the ideal of brotherhood if any states raise a protest against us it is only pro forma at our discretion and by our direction for their anti-semitism is indispensable to us for the management of our lesser brethren again saying they're going to change um verbiage change laws change perceptions of liberty equality and brotherhood so that they can be used um by them right instead of having liberty we have the right to liberty and so by saying we we don't have you don't have liberty you have the right to liberty because now it becomes an institutional thing a political thing because you can change the definition of what a right is a right is that which is given by the institution and so the if the institution is not giving you a right guess what you don't have liberty you don't have the right to liberty so you see how they they plan to whoever wrote this apparently plan to cleverly change the definition of things change the perception of things so that um we no longer have the sovereignty to navigate these things ourselves but now have to um go through the mediancy of the secret government to be given these things you see what i'm saying man all right so um 
It says here, we have fooled, bemused, and corrupted the youth of the Goyim by rearing them in principles and theories which are known to us to be false, although it is by us that they have been inculcated. inculcated. Again, infiltrating the mind of the youth, youth through, the, through the universities, through music, through entertainment, to create these ridiculous, trivial theories and, and principalities and, and perceptions so that they could be a, a, a force of confusion for the world. Because you have the old world, the old traditions, and then you have these corrupted youths who come with all these backwards, corrupted, uh, trivial theories and passions who are now upsetting the natural world, the natural order of things, and changing it. Um, and so they are just basically brainwashed agents of the new world order who are there to be used as man manipulation agents, right? Manipulation agents, because if somebody of the old world, of the old tradition comes and says, this is not right, some brainwashed youngin of who, who is an agent of the new world order can come along and say, um, um, yeah, this is, you don't have a right to say this is not right. You know, you don't have a right to say this is not right. You cannot say that we're going to cancel you, so on and so forth. And it all just funnels and spirals and it sucks. Um, protocol number 10. The mob cherishes a special affection and respect for the geniuses of political power and accepts all their deeds of violence with the, ad with the admiring response. The mob will exalt us and bear us up in their hands in a unanimous triumph of hopes and expectations. We shall destroy among the Goyim the importance of the family and its educational value and remove the possibility of individual minds splitting off for the mob handled by us will not let them come to the front. Again, right? So they just have to brainwash the masses and the masses will self-police. In this way, we shall create a blind, mighty force which will never be in a position to move in any direction without the guidance of our agents set at its head by us as leaders of the mob. The people will submit to this regime because it will know that upon these leaders will depend its earnings, gratifications, and the receipt of all kinds of benefits. The money is the root of all evil. Or no, I think it's the actual verse is like the pursuit of money is the root of all evil, right? That's all they need. So all they need is for us to just keep wanting money, riches, fame, gratification, validation. Those are the true currency of the new world order. And uh, in order for that, our in order that our scheme may produce this result, we shall arrange elections in favor of such presidents as have in their past some dark, undiscovered stain. Then they will be trustworthy agents for the accomplishment of our plans out of fear of revelations, blackmail. And these presidents will be a puppet in our hands. Independently of this, we shall invest the president with the right of declaring a state of war. You know, uh, puppet presidents. Protocol number 11. In order to obtain in a roundabout way what is for our scattered tribe unattainable, by the direct road, secret masonry, which is not known to, and aims which are not even so much as suspected by, these goy cattle attracted by us into the show army of Masonic lodges in order to throw dust in the eyes of their fellows. Uh, basically saying they're going to utilize Freemasonry, secret societies to further these plans, right? So there's like a secret top 
and that secret top infiltrates even the secret societies which think that they are you know the ones who are going to take over the world when really they're just being used to further trickle it all down all right protocol number 12 the last one that we are going to examine for this presentation the word freedom which can be interpreted in various ways is defined by us as follows freedom is the right to do that which the law allows this interpretation of the word will at the proper time be of service to us because all freedom will thus be in our hands since the laws will be since the laws will abolish or create only that which is desirable for us according to the aforesaid program and there you have it man in many words more than one uh pretty harrowing stuff right and and hey look you get to make the conclusion for yourself are the protocols of the learned elders of zion real i mean whether or not they're real or not <laughs> the, the world that we live in and how it operates is very similar to how this document um describes it to be you know so do i think they're real i don't know man they're they're prolific at the very least they're very prolific like the verbiage the the wisdom is very prolific and in the wrong hands can definitely be used to create some disastrous new world order systems and institutions and so um the guy who brought it to us sir guy Nilis, i believe was honest in his heart and believe they were real and believe he was doing us good by bringing this to us i don't i don't think he fabricated them i can say that for sure i don't think sir guy Nilis fabricated these i think he believed they were real and uh if anybody were to fabricate them it was the person he got them from but no i don't know man i, th I think they are real i think that they are real but i don't want to play into <clears throat> the anti-semitic aspect of it you know not that i don't know it's just because that part just leaves so much room for disaster man and it's like i don't know man for me it's like all of it's whack you know what i mean like all of it is is just trivial you know all of the abrahamic faiths are are in some ways hindrance you know and so for like for us to play on the anti-semitic aspect of it it's like we're, we're kind of siding with the christian aspect of things you know um, i mean it, it is interesting though how in the old testament or i think the new testament says that there will be a synagogue of satan who pretends to be jews so it's crazy man it's like it's all prophetic it's all mixed in with the abrahamic faiths because the new test even the new testament says that there will be a fake synagogue of jews known as the synagogue of satan so are they the no protocol are they the learned elders of zion who wrote out these protocols who knows and obviously in actual in the actual history and in our actual world a lot of the stuff is ran by jewish men and women you know and uh look i'm not here to say that i'm not here to say anybody is more evil than the, than the other you know what i mean to me it's just all human uh fanaticism it's all human fanaticism it's just all human dogma it's all human ridiculousness because to to placate one side is to just 
condemn the other, right? Or a better way to put it is to condemn one side is simply to placate the other. So if we condemn like the 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 Jewish side of it, then we're just saying like, okay, we believe in the New Testament, we believe in the prophecies and all that stuff. And then if if we if we do, then that means we have to go all the way with it. And it's like, all right, where do we go with that? You know? But I don't know, man. You know. It is what it is. We live in a fucking crazy world. We live in a very crazy world, a loony world. Uh, and I personally just want to step outside of all of this dogma, man, as much as I can, because it's just crazy, you know? Because, I mean, yes, we can say that very wealthy, powerful Jewish men are ruling certain aspects of our world, but so are very wealthy, successful powerful uh muslim men and christian men and so on and so forth you know so it's all coercion it's all working together the true god is money so any agent of money is of the synagogue of satan to me you know and we're all guilty we're all guilty because we live and operate in the money matrix and i'm guilty of it you know so until we really, really get to the deep core issue, which is this backwards mirrored altered dimension of money matrix, then we're going to just continue to be ruled over and faced with these New World Order-esque uh, systems, you know? So is it real? Sure, it's real. Sure, it's real, you know, but so what? What does that mean? You know, like I said, ain't nobody going to rule me. Ain't nobody going to brainwash me. I'm still here to live my life. And as St. Seraphim said, I'm going to live my life not for the money matrix system, but my, I'm going to live my life for the Christ system. Joshua Christ. Yup. Anyways, I hope you have fun. Hope you learned something. Comment down below whether or not you think it's the, the protocols are real or not. What's up? It's Serge Inilis a G with Saint Seraphim a G. A. Hey, love y'all. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.